Hi there, I'm Pastor Rod Parsley, and I sure want to thank you for listening to today's podcast. I'm the senior pastor of World Harvest Church, where we love God and love people, and I hope you'll be inspired by today's message. Now, for more great content and lots of updates, I'd love to connect with you online at rodparsley.com. But right now, let's head into today's episode. I'm ready and I'm going to cover, God willing, a lot of material. I will be delving, I believe, into chapter four, chapter three or four, chapter four. I don't remember. I wrote it all. I can't remember what's where. Chapter four of one man, one tree, one Friday, the cross. I want to begin by telling you that final words are important. On his deathbed, the immensely wealthy movie studio kingpin, Louis B. Mayer, said these words, nothing matters, nothing matters. How tragic. How unbelievably horrific to have lived your life and come to the end of that great journey. The only thing you can utter over purple dying lips is nothing matters. Nothing matters. Gravely ill, the anti-Christian French philosopher Voltaire begged his doctor for a miracle. The physician was powerless, of course, to deliver. Voltaire exclaimed, I am abandoned by God and man. Voltaire cursed those words to his practitioner. And then he said, I will give you half of everything I'm worth for six months more on the crusty surface of this people planet. The doctor gave him no hope and Voltaire bitterly shouted, then I'll go to hell and you will go with me. Final words of Prince Albert, the husband of Queen Victoria were much different. Said Prince Albert, I have had wealth I have had rank, I have had power, but if these were all I had, how wretched I should be. And then he continued, rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. The great circuit riding preacher John Wesley's final words were these, the best of all is God is with us. Farewell, farewell. His brother Charles died uttering words to the Christ of Calvary. They were these, I shall be satisfied with thy kindness. As I read these words again today, upon a pool of tears upon my knees in my study chamber, I said, God, let these be my words when I come to the end of life's journey. Satisfied, I'm satisfied. So what of Jesus' final words gasped from that angry cross, those seven brief statements uniquely distinguished as a result of the unusual context in which they were uttered for a crucified man to speak any words at all from his 
torturous rail required unthinkable effort. Therefore, these words merit our closest attention. So let us climb Golgotha's craggy slope and draw near, draw near, draw near to the cross. Let us listen very, very intently. We will have to listen in hushed tones for his bloody lungs are now swollen and heavy. The air is acid and thick. There are the gnawing of the insects. There is the pounding of the beak of the birds. There, there are those howling dogs fresh on the scent of new blood. We will have to stand here for six long, torturous hours from nine in the morning until three in the afternoon. We will hear our Savior utter but seven brief but weighty statements. The first word, Luke 23, 34, shout it with me, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The cross like life is both vertical with that upright beam pointing simultaneously to heaven and to hell. But the cross is also horizontal, parallel to the surface of the earth and extending outward like the arms of God himself. He does not have the whole wide world in his hands as we sang as children. He has the whole wide world surrounded in his loving embrace. Vertically, life is like that cross, both vertical and horizontal. Vertically, we stand connected to God. Horizontally, we are connected to each other. Oh, that believers would come to the realization and revelation that in order to be connected, you cannot separate the cross. You cannot take the cross beam away and have only the vertical beam. You may not be, you may not have the opportunity to have as you wish just your little life with you and Jesus and no more. I'm talking to somebody. The church is dying because the church has become introverted. The church has become me-oriented. The church has fallen into the most desperate form of Gnosticism, where we speak beautiful words to God and hateful and bitter and angry words. Why, hear him declare to you how out of the same mouth do we bless God and curse men. Shove somebody and say, forgive me. Vertical, that's redemptive. Horizontal, that's relationship. Vertical, that's covenant. Horizontal, that's community. Vertical, that's kingdom. Horizontal, that's society. Vertical, that's holiness. Horizontal, that's humility. Vertical, that's grace. Horizontal, it's gratitude. Vertical, it's truth. But how many of you understand we have to have more than vertical relationship with God. We have to have more than just truth. Somebody's got to put their boots on and live this thing out. Horizontal, it's reality. Just shove somebody and tell them, you got to live this thing. Vertical is righteousness. Horizontal is justice. Vertical is salvation. But horizontally, it is transformation. Not God. Vertically, it is faith. 
horizontally it is faithful. <laughs> oh, I have great faith, Pastor Rod. Where were you Wednesday night? Oh, I was a little tired. I was watching online. I have great faith. <laughs> Wonderful. Where were you Sunday night? Oh, my business. You know what God said? Let your dumb business bury your dumb business because it's going to be dumb if you keep putting it in front of me. I preached down here. <laughs> Vertically, it's grace. Horizontally, it's gratitude. Vertically, it's atonement. Somebody shall thank God for the blood. Vertically, it's atonement. How many of you glad for it? Shout for atonement. Yeah, let, me, let me help you a little bit. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's atonement. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's atonement. Oh, precious is the flow that washes white as snow. No other fountain, no. Nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's atonement. But it is unuseful and of no effect without the horizontal crossbeam which lies connected. Forgiveness. But you don't know what they did to me. I know what they did to him. But they lied about me. Bless them. They stole from me. Go take something you've got, sell it, and give them the money. Why are you looking at me funny? No, we only want the vertical. We only want, this is my next book. We only want the vertical. You see, we only want the atonement. And we gloat in how forgiven we are while we look down our long nose and sit in little rooms and criticize. Vertically, it's prayer. Horizontally, it is policy. Oh, get ready to shout, Joni. Vertically, it is sanctification, but horizontally, it is service. Vertically, it's worship. But horizontally, it's walk. It is the place. It is the place where conviction married compassion. It is the place where truth joined hands with mercy to reach the sinner and to transform the saint while impacting our culture and redeeming our world. The silence of the Lamb has ended. I think I'll write a book. The Silence of the Lamb. And the shout of the saints rings out at the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith. I received my sight and now I am happy all the day and now more than ever, heaven declares from its throne of grace, there's room at the cross for me. At long last, Jesus reaches the bald top of that scully hill called Calvary. The four-man team 
of Roman centurions are now part of the modern church. They're all intoxicated. It's the only way they can begin to survive and stomach the blood-soaked, scream-filled days of anguish and woe as the nails are driven deep into his flesh like fiery fangs, he speaks words of forgiveness. As his guiltless blood falls and splashes upon the ground, mercy falls from his lips. I need to parenthetically insert this. If I hear one more so-called Christian say these words, well, Forgiveness is a process. It's going to take me a while to get over I'll get over it. But it's going to take me some time. If you've ever heard words like that, I dare you on three to shoot your hand up in the air. One, two, three. Where do we get such ball-faced idiocy. Well, it's a process. I was just so deeply wounded. It's just going to take time. Oh, I forgive, but the scars, the scars. Want to see them? Want me to tell you about them? Atonement, forgiveness. Jesus, think about it, think about it. I don't, I wish I had time to preach. Think about it. As he hangs there pale and pallid, as he hangs there suffering and bleeding and wheezing, sighing and dying, the very first, no process, no time elapsed. No one had even asked him nor requested for him to forgive them. Good God Almighty, the white boy is preaching tonight. Well, I'd forgive them, but they haven't even had, they haven't even asked me. Now you'd shout if I was preaching to you how to get a hundred dollar raise on your job. And I'm teaching you right now how to bring heaven to earth, break every barrier, loose every chain, heal every sick and afflicted person, have a revival that shakes the very foundations of the earth so the late night comedians have nothing to say and preachers preaching the cross take their airtime. Somebody shout! I feel like Dwight Thompson. I feel like R.W. Shambach. You don't have any trouble. All you need is faith in God. I feel like all Roberts. Something good is about to happen to you. I feel like Billy Graham. At the cross, at the cross. Child! I'm gonna preach tonight till I get done. The very first words he said, shout the first words. Can you understand me? I'm sorry. I said, shout the first words. I said, shout the first words. Try it again. They got it in North Carolina. Shout the first words. With no time lapse, no letter of apology.
No time for you to call your five best friends and tell them how abused you've been. Can you imagine him on this dying beam? Hey, John, let me tell you about Judas. Those cursing, two-fisted, bulging muscles, looking like Arnold Schwarzenegger in his prime, angry, garlic-eating, hardened centurions swing those hammers and the ringing of hammer on iron bursts in his ears and his first words are forgive him this is not what he simply said this is supremely who he was this he knows this he wants for every single one of us to know there was purpose in his pain i need you to say that there was purpose in his pain this is why he came, John 3, 17, for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world. So why are you? But that the world through him might be saved. Forgive them. Say it. Forgive them. Forgive. Forgive. Practice it. I know it feels like a curse word in your mouth, but go ahead and say it. Say it. That petition for mercy extends far beyond those rugged and rough soldiers like ripples under an ocean of grace. It extends to the jeering crowds. This call for clemency expands to every son, to every daughter of Adam's race. Thank God, thank God in every place. It extends to you tonight. It extends to me tonight. All of us whose trans Transgressions alone were the consummate cause in God's Son being bolted to this tree. We, you and me, we caused this. And the very first words out of his mouth are forgive them. He alone, upon two timbers, bridged the darkened abyss. He interceded for you and for me, whose sins he bare in his own body on the tree. This request of his father was made here. You understand that? This request was made here amid the suffering in this moment as his atoning blood begins to be shed as he watches his life pour out of him the very first thing he asks in these dark dark days is father Word number two, Luke 23, 43. Luke 23, 43. Verily, I say unto you, today you shall be with me in paradise. I love this one. 
The silence of the Prince of God on that center cross stands in such stark contrast to the mockery of the soldiers in the midst of a raucous dice game to determine who receives his seamless tunic. That woman with the issue of blood, she wanted that robe because she understood that if she could touch the edge of that cross, cloth there was healing in those wings the sign above his mutilated head reads this is the king of the Jews and it provides ample opportunity for the religious authorities to take her turns hurling taunts and insults his way words like he saved others let him save himself if he be Christ Haven't you ever heard that one? So you serve God and you're still sick. You believe in prosperity and at the moment can't pay your rent. Eventually the clamor of all that abuse is joined from an unlikely quarter. It's, it's one of those criminals beside it. It's the angry one. There are always those in the crowd. From his left, Jesus hears, so you're the Messiah, huh? Why don't you prove it? Why don't you save yourself? And by the way, while you're at it, why don't you just save us too? Prove to me that you're no fool. Walk across my swimming pool. Through it all, the Lamb of God remains mute. Silence. But unexpectedly, suddenly we hear from the other side, the other thief, bending over until his flesh tears from that angry five-inch spike, rebuking the other thief. Do you not fear God? This man has done nothing. We deserve to die. Clearly, somehow or another in Jesus' demeanor, on that beam he has convinced that criminal that he, Jesus, is exactly who he said he was. So faith rises. Faith rises in the heart of a dying, suffering man. Faith enough to prompt a simple plea. Lord, remember me when you come into... Get ready, get ready, get ready. Shove somebody and tell them something about to happen. No, did you hear me? I said shove somebody right now and tell them something about to happen right now. Right now, something's about to happen. That thief said this, Elder Canfield, he said, Pastor Ramirez, he said, Dr. Dupree, he said, he said, when you come into your glory, remember me. But even in this place of abject horror and abuse, our great high priest cannot leave a prayer unanswered. can barely even speak. His bones are all out of joint. His shoulders have come out of their sockets. His mouth is parched and his throat is filling up with blood from his lungs. But he heard a dirty, rotten, stinking, scoundrel feet utter a tiny prayer. Remember me. Even now, as forever down, through the ages, the feeblest cry of faith compels him to respond. He lives himself up. And he looks over and says, I got an unexpected out of season. 
right time at the wrong time. Miracle for you, bud. Today, not tomorrow, today, you shall be with me in paradise. Somebody shout, I feel like I'm a damn me. I dare you all over America to lift up your hands like that dying thief and shout, Remember me! Stop, I command you. You want me to stop? I already know this. You want me to stop? Okay. Did you get it? No, did you get it? Did you get it? You can't just read the Bible. You got to read the Bible. Here's what he said. Remember me. That's it. That's it. But my Bible in Ephesians 3.20 caught up with the gospel of Luke because my Bible said that Jesus responded to that feeble faint prayer from a nasty dirty sinner dying on the cross he deserved and God not only remembered him he gave him exceedingly abundantly above all that he could ever ask or think no wonder Revelation 19 calls him faithful and true. Somebody shout hallelujah. I said somebody shout hallelujah. Think, think about that. I, I don't want to skip past this. Here, here's this cat. He's bolted to a tree. He is a hopeless, convicted condemned criminal. That's how he came to the cross. And he became the first to discover what millions across two millennia would come to realize. Put it up there, Romans 10, 13, give it to me. Whosoever shall call the name of the Lord shall be saved. Somebody get to calling. The third word, third word, John 19, 26. Woman, behold thy son. The sun is now climbing higher. The Savior's strength is waning. He sees that hate-contorted crowd with their faces mangled and marred in hatred. Amid that sea of scorn float only two pairs of eyes with only love, with grief, and with tears. His closest friend, John, and his beloved mother beholding something no mother should ever have to look upon, but she insisted on being there. Roman legions could not persuade her to leave so he fastens his eyes on Mary and he gently utters woman behold thy son and then he directs his swollen eyes just slits now in that miry red blood oozing from either side he can see John and he points to John with his eyes just to make it clear that he's telling him about his mother he called her woman one other time before. It was just three years ago at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. He protested to her when she said, turn the water to wine. He said, woman, my time has not come. And now that time has come. Yeah. 
So looking to his most trusted disciple, he completes the couplet, Behold thy mother in these first hours on the cross, the living, dying Savior has interceded. He stood in the gap. He's made up the hedge. He prayed for those nailing him to the cross. He prayed for a repentant thief. And now he stands in the gap for his mother who carried him at eight months of age into that temple. Eight days old to present him there to God. She ran into a silvery-haired old man by the name of Simeon. Simeon said, God, don't let me die till I see the Lord's salvation. And they brought in the baby Jesus to bless him. But he had a word for Mary too. A sword. Here's a prophecy for you. A sword will pierce your soul. He had warned her. And now the day of that piercing had come. Suddenly, without warning, the Palestinian son refuses to beat down any longer into his open wounds. The son itself can bear to look upon the scene of horror no longer, and darkness stalks the earth. The fourth word, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The accumulated sin guilt of all humanity is now being poured out upon him, upon that rail. A holy God can no longer be in contact with depravity. Paul asked in 2 Corinthians 6.14, what fellowship hath light with darkness before the veil can be torn in the temple a heavy curtain must first fall between the father and his son so the light of the father's countenance turns away and creation itself mirrors the abandonment deep darkness covers the earth it's but 12 in the afternoon. Psalm, one, Psalm 18 verse 11. God made darkness his pavilion, his hiding place. Round about him now were dark, dark waters and thick clouds. From this point forward, silence and darkness will govern all of these proceedings. The soldiers suddenly run out of jokes. Both I, Isaiah declared, and the children the Lord God hath given me are for signs and wonders. Those jeering legions and hissing demons suddenly realized something has changed. At noon, they cannot see their hand in front of their faces. They pull their capes tight and strut against the ill will and wind that now moans down through the Kidron Valley and up to that outcrop called the Skull. G. Campbell Morgan said it this way. It's not to be passed over lightly that all of the Gospels, the synoptics record the fact of that darkness 
three hours of darkness, three hours of silence. All the ribald clamor was over. The material opposition totally exhausted. The turmoil had ended. Man had done his worst. It is as though the appalling silence and overwhelming darkness had changed the entire attitude of man to the Savior. I will remind you that there is coming a time when the sun will be turned into darkness. I will remind you that there will come a moment upon this planet when the world is dying and the moon is bleeding and the seas are seething under the whiplash of fury to spill their dead in the lap of God. And Jimmy Kimmel will go mute. Reminds me of the man who took out an ad in the newspaper in Texas. He said, I don't believe in God. And I took out a full page ad in this newspaper. And on Sunday at 12 o'clock in the afternoon, I'm going into such and so field on Friday. And there, I will curse God to his face. And if he be God, let him strike me dead. So out into that field he went on Friday, cursing and swearing and stomping and hissing. And finally, after he wore himself out, he exclaimed, I told you, there's no God. little elderly preacher walked up to him when he was leaving and said, sir, that was quite a performance. I don't mean any disrespect. I just need you to remember God does not always settle his accounts on Friday afternoon. Sundays are coming. I need somebody to shout. There will come a time when your mockery will turn to silence. There will come a time when your blasphemies will come to an end. There will come a time where God will no longer allow his name to be damned. He will show up in the flurry and the fury and the veracity of a love that this world has never known. And there in that moment, he will declare an end to time as we know it. Split the eastern sky and I'm going home. I won't worry about the silliness you print in your newspaper. I won't be reading your blog. I won't be looking into your crystal ball to know what's happening to me. And by the way, when it happens, right outside this building, there's a cross. Underneath that cross, I've got a tape and a CD and a, and a video. Get it out of there. It'll tell you what to do after I leave this planet and you start crying out in the darkness for God to save your damaged soul. I wish I had half a church. I got more. I dare you to egg me on. Here's what he says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Greek, why have you forsaken me? His physical, natural man who had never been separated from the warmth and the love and the radiance of the presence of his father longed for that. But I can tell you that that's not what he said in Aramaic. What he said in Aramaic is something completely different. He was not on this cross a whining little 
little sniffling some kind of self-interested baby. He was the son of God. He wasn't afraid to die. He wasn't afraid of hell. And so in, in, in Aramaic, rather than my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He said these words, for what purpose have you spared me and my sweet Lord? What are we going to do next? I gotta hurry. The fifth word, I thirst. Can you imagine that living water is dying of thirst? It's been 24 hours since he had a bite of bread or a drink of drop of water. At one point he asks for water and they give him vinegar and gall. Now he requests and accepts what he'd earlier refused life-giving and comforting water. It's a jarring reminder that Jesus has laid aside divine privilege to accomplish what was legal and necessary. He's fully man. He feels what we feel. He needs what we need. He's thirsty. On another day, he asked for water. You'll remember that. He was at a well in Samaria. And there, a lady of the evening came to draw water. And he stopped her and said, how about you give me a drink? And she said, how is it that you being a Jew ask water of me, you Samaritan? She sounded like Christians. She wants to argue, and he wants to change her life. I promise you there'll be people show up on Sunday night that God wants to heal. And they will give him every argument in the world why he shouldn't. Healing's not for today. It passed away with the apostles. Well, I just don't feel nothing. Well, I really don't deserve to be healed. Well, quite frankly, what would I have to talk about if he did heal me? He wanted to change her life. And she wanted to argue doctrine and theology. That's the reason we don't do much with exegesis at Valor Christian College. Because when I had it in college, all they spent their time doing was exing out Jesus. He wanted to change her life. I gotta hurry. Just one word this time. The sixth word. It is finished. Now, if I'm going to finish this, and I got about eight more minutes, I want everybody in this building to get on your feet and shout at the top of your lungs, because God's about to put an end to some stuff. Get ready, get ready. Stir yourself up, sir. Don't let yourself sink down right now. Don't let yourself sink down right now. Two more words. Two more words. Shout it with me. It is finished. A corner has been turned. A goal has been reached. A mountain has been climbed. An ocean crossed. A valley transversed. A foe has been conquered. A victory has been won. A king has been crowned.
shouting it is finished and cancer will go. Keep shouting it is finished and the darkness will dissipate. Keep shouting it is finished and victory will come. The suffocating blanket of darkness begins to lift. But the sun has begun its fiery plunge into the Mediterranean to be extinguished for another night. The Jewish Sabbath begins at sundown. It is rapidly approaching just one word this time. When John recalls this statement in his gospel, he uses a Greek accounting term. In the English translation, please be seated. In the English translation, it is raped of its meaning. They translated it, it is finished. Three words. To attempt to describe one Greek word. Stuff like that always sticks out to me. So during that two years of research, I went to digging. And I found out that they'd stripped it of its meaning. It, it is finished simply means something has come to an end. They broke the legs of those thieves beside him. They had to because There'd be a Jewish uprising if they left them hanging there after sundown. So they had to break their legs to speed up their death. So they broke the ones on the left and they broke the ones on the right. And when they came to Jesus' cross, and they began to swing that mighty hammer, one of the Romans put out his hand and said, There's no need. His chest no longer heaves. He's gone. Never again would you feel the pulse of the flushed cheek of an infant child. Never again would a rose give forth its fragrance. Never again would the sun rise from meridian darkness and give a light to this cursed planet. It is finished. Did not mean an end. It meant something far more powerful. It meant everything has been accomplished. Yeah. Shout, there's nothing left to do. Everything that was lacking has been supplied. <laughs> the breach has been healed. The debt has been satisfied. Shalom. Nothing broken. Nothing missing. You remember this? You remember this? You remember this? I'm almost finished. Remember this? John the Baptist said, John the Baptist said to Jesus, John the Baptist said, Hey, I, I see these works you do. I, I, I was just wondering, um, are you him? Are you the one? Or should we wait for another one? 
And John was rather elusive. He answered the question, but he answered it the way people answer a news commentator. He answered it mm, politically. Meaning he gave an answer, but it wasn't to the question they asked. But now he speaks emphatically. From that beam he shouted, Hey! You can stop looking now. The promised one has appeared and accomplished the prophesied task. It is finished and dominion is returned to planet Earth to its rightful steward, Lord, the apex of the, cre the creation of God. Humanity is now in charge again. Jesus declared an end to that religious striving to build some kind of ladder back to God. God himself donned flesh and bone and blood and willingly laid down his life on that cross. It is finished, he cries. And then with victorious humility, he bows that thorn-pierced head. Nothing left to do now. But with his last breath, exhale this prayer into thy hands. I commit my spirit. His last words are a direct mirror of his first words. He's in the temple now. His parents like some kind of vacation comedy movie, leave him behind. Finally, they realize he's gone. Back to the temple they go. They find him astounding the scribes and the Pharisees. What are you doing, they say. Know you not, watch, that I must be about my father's business. Now the son's portion of the father's business is completed. The next step, bringing him out of that borrowed tomb, is all in the father's hands. Jesus could still leap off that cross. He could still call 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. Death has neither power nor authority to take him against his will. With a loud voice, he speaks those final words, this side of an empty tomb, a prayer of consecration. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. <laughs> I'm placing my trust in you. You're not going to leave me. I'm going into the bowels of hell. You're not going to leave me in hell's noxious, venomous grasp. He says, I know you won't leave me in that tomb because Paul will write years later, but if the spirit of him that raised up Christ from the dead dwells in you, he shall quicken your mortal body. You won't leave me because David saw through the telescope of prophecy and he wrote those words thou shalt not leave my soul in hell nor suffer thy darling to see corruption you won't leave me because Simon Peter's going to preach after the day of Pentecost you men of Israel hear these words Jesus of Nazareth a man attested by God by miracles and wonders and signs which God did through him as you yourselves know, you delivered him by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. You've taken by lawless hands, you've crucified him, you put him to death, whom God has raised from the dead, having loosed the pains of death 
because it was not possible that death should hold him. He dies praying that prayer so that you and I might pray it and live. Lay your hands on your belly. Father, say it, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Pray it again into thy hands. I commit my spirit. Father. Wait, wait, whoa, stop. Wait just a moment. Only dead people can pray that prayer. Only those crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I. Christ lives in me. Hey, thanks for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed it, I want to invite you to tell someone in your life about the podcast. Hope you'll do it today. Head on over to iTunes and leave a review. Share it on your social networks for me. Really helps me get the word out. I'd love for you to connect with me on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. No easier way for me to minister to you every day and throughout the day and for us to join together in faith as God moves in and through your life. You can find links to all my pages at rodparsley.com. God bless you now, and I hope you'll listen again soon.